This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing here, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Brave New Films, the Tom Hartman program, Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp, The David Pakman Show, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, and Talk Poverty Radio. Just another in a recent spike in homeless arrests. 20% arrested this month have been homeless. You get arrested just because you're homeless. The typical long-term chronic homeless person was being put in jail a lot because of small petty crimes, open containers, trespassing, loitering, all those kinds of things. Columbia, South Carolina, another city criminalizing homelessness. Well, where are the homeless people supposed to go? The homeless end up in the criminal justice system because there hasn't been a better alternative. I served three and a half years at the Utah State Prison, so I've been homeless a little over a year now. This morning, I had got out of jail, sat down like this. The officer had pulled up on his motorcycle and told me I was going to jail. This was the same officer who had just taken me to jail not even 24 hours ago. Our homeless need long-term treatment solutions instead of just incarcerations and then put them, put them back in the street. Just because I don't have a car, I don't have a credit card in my pocket or change in my pocket or a home to go to, does not make me a criminal. We did a survey here, it was about $20,000 per person per year on the street because of emergency services costs. Jail time, EMT runs, emergency room visits. And so we realized we were incurring those costs anyway. It was a much more humane and economic way in order to meet their needs. You'd be surprised who's homeless. Most people are homeless. They are running away from problems. They were all running away from you know, drug addiction. Got molested when I was a kid, about six years old. Started drinking early age of 13. I couldn't deal with my problems. I've been homeless for the last 20 years. About 10% of the homeless population were chronically homeless. A chronic homeless individual that's been homeless a year or more or four times in three years. A lot of mental health issues, substance abuse issues. We decided to adopt a housing first model. Instead of asking people to change their lives before we gave them housing, we chose to give them housing along with the supportive services and then allow them to change their lives if they wanted to. We can house them for about $7,800 per person per year for case management and rental assistance in a housing unit. 2005, in order to get into housing, you need to be clean, dry, and sober. And if you fell off the wagon, then you lost your housing and case management. Well, we weren't reducing homelessness. In 1998, we got kicked out because I was using drugs. We went back again in like a routine for the last 15 years. I mean, it was hard. Having a house is the stable base for everything. If you don't have a stable place to live, that's going to be the biggest crisis on your mind every day when you go to bed. Whereas when you're in your own home, that whole level of stress is taken away. And now you can focus on everything else that you need to focus on in your life. But it works because we've come down 72% from our high in 2005. Getting my housing here literally saved my life. Well, they arrested me at least 18 times. Ended up at the detox. The police brought me in there. 
I would be sad. I was shaking hard. But Ed moved me in here. I mean, I had towels up there, clean sheets, pots and pans. He brought me a big box full of canned goods. He said, well, anything you need, call me. And I looked around and I told him, I said, no, Ed, I got it from here. We've been able to show that if you house people properly and correctly, is that it takes them out of the judicial system and the recidivism rate decreases. It's kind of like a security place for me. I know I've got a place to stay. This is good, good feeling. If I was still the homeless guy, I would have continued on and drank myself to death at this point. It's my first complete 100% sober year. And it's a good start, I feel. You know, not the end of my program, but it's a good start. The ultimate goal is to eliminate chronic homelessness here in Utah by the year 2015. And the results here prove that that is an achievable goal. The old approach of emergency shelters and transitional housing has been a failure. Housing First has been accepted nationally. This is the key to ending chronic homelessness. The Casper Housing Authority is trying out a system they first saw in Salt Lake City. Staff say they've already seen success stories. Now with the Housing First, we're much more successful in getting them housed and out of the criminal justice system and off the street and help them integrate back into society. We're actually moving out today. It means a lot to me to have my family back where we can be by ourselves and it does help you. If you do need to come here, everyone needs a helping hand here and there. It is most cost effective. We can serve more people with the same amount of dollars than if we didn't do this program. But it's also the right thing to do. It just makes sense. situation in the Middle East is an absolute cluster. I mean, it's, it's just a disaster. And generally, reporters won't say it, but I will. Much of this would never have happened if George W. Bush had not lied us into a war and taken out Saddam Hussein. Iraq was the center of stability in the Middle East. And the whole theory of the neocon warlords in the Bush administration, the, the uh, Wolfowitzes and Rumsfelds and Cheneys of the world, the ones who believe that, if, that, that, that economics is every bit as you know, in our genes as democracy. You know, humans are naturally democratic, instinctively democratic animals, small d democratic. And, uh, you know, the conservative theology is that we're also money hoarders by instinct. And maybe food hoarders, who knows? I shared in the last hour my, my theory about uh, building on Dan Quinn's stuff and on stuff that I've written about in, in my books, Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight and in my book, Threshold, that European culture, and maybe there's something to the genetics of this as well, but I, I suspect it's cultural. European culture evolved, because cultures evolved too. European culture evolved in the face of food shortages. Because in Europe, there are winters. And winter produces a period of very little food. And so 
somebody figured out that if they grew a lot of food during the summer and then locked it up after it was harvested, people would give them all kinds of things in exchange for that food. Oh, yes, here's some money. Here's, here's uh, you know, uh, <laughs> take my kids. I mean, take <laughs> whatever. I mean, people would just, like, give up stuff in exchange for access to that food and, and all the things that went with the food. And thus came kings and kingdoms and lords and ladies and, uh, you know, this, this whole European hierarchy of, of the astonishingly rich at the top, the ones who locked up most of the food, and the working poor at the very bottom, the serfs. It was called feudalism. And nothing like that happened in in uh, to the best of my knowledge i mean there are probably variations on it but nothing as institutional continent wide really solid you know uh, to the point where all the royal families of europe were interbreeding with each other because they didn't want to bring in the commoners because after all you know god chose them to be the the, the wealthy ones and so is this is this the fatal flaw that has caused white people to be predatory wherever they've gone around the world basically over the last couple thousand years, the last 3,000 years. As white people have spread around the world and enslaved people and, and locked up the food. In fact, here in the United States, they've locked up the food so well that we've got in many African-American neighborhoods what are referred to as food deserts. Places where you cannot find fresh fruit and vegetables. All you can find are processed foods. And now we're seeing these studies that processed foods contain emulsifiers, so that the, uh, you know, without an emulsifier, the, that white stuff in a Twinkie would turn into water with thick white goo on the top. So the emulsifier mix it all together. But emulsifiers, when they get in our intestinal tract, appear to mess with our gut bacteria, which is necessary for us to absorb nutrients. And so you see this epidemic of literally malnutrition. And one of the principal symptoms of that malnutrition is being overweight happening in, in poor, poor, largely African-American communities in the United States because there's no food that's worth eating. And then kids grow up eating a terrible diet, and it becomes their habit as, as an adult, and they end up dying of heart attacks and, and strokes and cancer and, and uh, you know, high blood pressure, and you, you name it, much earlier than, than white people, by and large. But could it be that this... This, this way of thinking about culture, of, of uh, thinking about possessions that I believe came along with the agricultural revolution in the north, in the northern part of Europe. Could it be that that thinking is one of the main things that's driving this whole, you know, uh, not just the whole white privilege thing, but the whole, you know, cops behaving badly, white cops behaving badly thing? And if so, what do we do about that? Well, if if I'm right, then that would argue that we need to stop the people who would lock up the food from locking up the food. And we need to make that food available to people who didn't have the land to grow it on, you know, who, who, who didn't in, inherit an oil company from their daddy, basically.
Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Let me ask you guys something. Are any of you on food stamps? No? Didn't think so, because you're not dumb enough to put food in the mail. That's right. Recently, House Republicans unveiled their new budget, which, which actually allotted less money than you might think for their own personal bacon-scented pillows. That's a real product, by the way. Why do we need bacon-scented pillows? Because America. Anyway, the Republican budget, if enacted, would do something we've all wanted to do for a long time. Take away food from the poor disabled people who are gobbling it up almost as fast as the poor abled people. Those lazy douchebags have been just sitting around, often because they're not able to stand up, just sitting around collecting money to feed themselves. Nothing screams nanny state like someone who has been through a life-threatening accident and wants to also eat food? <laughs> Wasn't it enough that you got wheels on your chair, okay? Now you want food? You'll probably want wheels on that too. 38% of Americans on food stamps are either disabled or elderly. Another 44.8% are families with children. That I understand because children are equivalent to having a horrible disease. They really are. One that can run around and pee on things. The GOP budget proposal would cut $125 billion out of food stamps over the next 10 years, kicking roughly 11 million people off the program, which sounds bad at first, but keep in mind, we're talking mostly black people. And by that, I mean white people. 40% of food stamps go to white people in the U.S., 25% to black people, 10% to Hispanic, and nearly 13% to race unknowns. Those race unknowns. They're lazy, they're dumb, they smell terrible, and they're always eating lamb chops while driving poorly. Have you noticed that? Have you? Have you? With the lamb chops? It's okay, I can say these things. My best friend is a big, fat race unknown. But now, keep in mind, keep in mind, this $125 billion the Republicans want to get by taking food from poor elderly people in wheelchairs, scooting around helplessly trying to figure out their rent. That money is about one-eighth of the amount that has been spent on the F-35 jet that still isn't operational. Apparently, they haven't yet uh, found a way to get the money gun working. Once they do, it will just fire cash indiscriminately at targets. So why does a jet get so much money from Congress while poor people are pushed out the door? Well, Lockheed Martin, the company building the jet, spent over 14 million dollars on lobbying Congress last year. Where have I uh, heard that fact before? And hungry poor people spent, let me check, carry the one, 
Yeah, zero. Zero dollars on lobbying. Then again, poor people don't need to eat food. We can just give them bacon-scented food stamps and they can eat those. We've talked about the war on the poor a lot recently, looking at uh, cutting food stamps from the parents of children who were caught protesting in Baltimore, Missouri and Wisconsin pushing bills that restrict what individuals are allowed to buy if they're on food stamps or temporary assistance for needy, needy families. This is just shocking. Kansas is going further. We know that the poor rely on cash much more than wealthy people. When you have cash as a poor person, you can spend it wherever you want, whenever you want, unlike all of those restrictions, for example, on food stamps. Cash is one of the most valuable resources that a poor person in the U.S. can have. Legislators in Kansas, apparently not trusting the poor to use their own cash, have uh, passed a daily cap of $25 on cash withdrawal set to start on July 1st. This means beneficiaries have to go to the ATM more often, incurring ATM fees, meaning they will actually have less money left over. You might know that many ATMs don't dispense $5 bills, so a $25 cap is effectively a $20 cap in most cases. And what else is this going to do? This is going to push poor people to have to go to payday lenders, check cashing places, all sorts of places that impose exorbitant fees and interest rates on poor people because they just can't get out enough cash. What a war on the poor that is being waged here. Yeah, the banks must be loving this too because now you'll have more credit card use. You'll, oh, yeah. have, uh, you'll have overdraft charges and it's, uh, it's pretty despicable. And lawmakers indeed said they implemented the provision because they wanted to ensure that beneficiaries weren't wasting the money. That was being made available to them. This makes the big banks richer. This makes payday lenders richer. This does everything but help the poor. Because Republicans believe in small government, Lewis, except if you're poor, gay, a woman, or, uh, I mean, there, there must be others I'm forgetting, then the government is fully in charge of the minutia of your daily life, medical consults, who you can marry, where you can spend your money, etc. tonight concerns food, or as plants and animals might call it, the afterlife. We, we love food in America, as you would know if you've ever turned on a television set. IHOP All You Can Eat Pancakes are back. Introducing All You Can Eat Wings only at Golden Corral. Everyone's favorite endless shrimp is back. People wait for this promotion all year long. Riblets, riblets, riblets. Applebee's has riblets. All that you can eat now, riblets. 
Sadness, sadness, sadness. Let food replace your sadness. Stuff riblets in that hole in your heart. That is, that's a catchy way to sell hog scraps hidden in barbecue sauce. In fact, celebrating America often goes hand in hand with celebrating its food. Watch this actual commercial running right now. What's more American than a cheeseburger? This cheeseburger, loaded with a hot dog and potato chips. In the hands of all American model Samantha Hoops. In a hot tub. In a pickup truck. Driven by an American bull rider. On an aircraft carrier. Under the gaze of Lady Liberty. As she admires the most American thick burger. New at Carl's Jr. and Hardee's. Wow! A cheeseburger with hot dog and potato chips. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the new Confederate flag. She's majestic. But, but this, is not, this is not a story about the food we eat. It's a story about the food we don't eat, because there is a surprising amount of it. A report by the Natural Resources Defense Council says that as much as 40% of all the food produced in the United States never gets eaten. Americans throw away $165 billion worth of food every year. That's about 20 pounds per person every month. Americans throw away enough food every year to fill 730 football stadiums. Food waste is like the band Rascal Flats. It can fill a surprising number of stadiums, even though many people consider it complete garbage. <laughs> but between producers Sellers and consumers, Americans are throwing out a third or more of our food, and the amount we throw out has increased by around 50% since the 1970s. At this rate, in 40 years, when you order pizza from Domino's, they'll just deliver it straight to the nearest dumpster. As they should, but that's not the point here. And, and if, you think, if you think that this sounds bad, just wait until you see how it looks. Check out this waste dump in California's Salinas Valley. We got a whole load pretty much of loose organic lettuce. You know, we've, we've got spinach towards the back. Uh, looks like it's perfectly fine, nothing wrong with it. We got some, uh, some kale here. We got broccoli in the back as well. We have plenty of produce to make a salad here. Oh, not just a salad. You could make a significantly better salad than the salads they actually sell at McDonald's, which look like the trimmings in Ronald McDonald's lawnmower mixed with Grimace ejaculates. And, and the thing is, watching all that food go from farm to not a table is awful for a bunch of reasons. First, and most obviously, there are many people in this country who need that food. In 2013, nearly 50 million Americans lived in food insecure households, meaning that at some point in the year, they struggle to put enough food on the table. And the fact that we throw away a third of our food gets pretty alarming when you hear from some of those people. It's hard. I'll, I'll go without food before my kids will. Budget's down to the penny and it's it's not enough still. It brings you to tears. Yeah. Why? It's just hard. They're so young and it's hard. It is crazy that that is happening in a country with 730 football stadiums full of uneaten food. It's insane. But there are also other less obvious consequences to discarding food. For a start, we're wasting all the labor and natural resources that went into making it. And at a time when the landscape of California is shriveling up like a pumpkin in front of a house with a lazy dad. It seems especially unwise that farmers are pumping water into food that ends up being used as a garnish for landfills, because those landfills go on to cause problems of their own. If you were to throw an apple core just out into the woods, it's not a big deal. 
problem comes when all of that waste is aggregated and it decomposes without air in a landfill. That anaerobic condition is what creates methane, which is a greenhouse gas that's more than 20 times as potent as CO2 at trapping heat. That's right. When we dump food into a landfill, we're essentially throwing a trash blanket over a flatulent food man and Dutch ovening the entire planet. <laughs> and, and if you're thinking, but, but hold on, John, what if I'm an arsehole who couldn't give a shit about America's hungry families or the long-term viability of life on Earth? Well, first, let me say, Mr. Trump, thank you so much for taking the time to watch this show tonight. It's lovely to have you with us. And secondly, don't worry. There is a selfish financial reason for you to care about this story, too. In our households, we're wasting somewhere between 15 and 25% of the food that we're buying. You know, that's expensive. I mean, imagine walking out of a grocery store with four bags of groceries, dropping one in the parking lot and just not bothering to pick it up. And that's essentially what we're doing in our homes today. And that's not good. When you're throwing away that much food, you're not just being wasteful, you're whining and dining raccoons. <laughs> oh, this is absolutely lovely. <laughs> Thanks for this, we needed a break from the kids. <laughs> and, and look, look, it's a good thing. So many of us have access to plenty of relatively inexpensive food. I love the fact that we live in a country with cap and crunch, uh, peanut butter crunch, chocolatey crunch, sprinkled donut crunch, cinnamon roll crunch, Christmas crunch, and Halloween crunch. I will even defend Oops All Berries crunch, a cereal so unnecessary that its actual name includes an apology for its existence. But it does seem, it does seem like our food wastage is getting to a critical mass, and so much of it stems from our own habits and misconceptions. For instance, Stores big and small often routinely overstock so that you can walk in and see tons of food there. Because if they don't do that, as this small farm stand operator describes it, we might not buy anything. If this was what I had, and there is an hour left in the market, that one bunch of chard would sit there and no one would buy it. But if I had 30 bunches of chard, all like bursting out, I'd probably sell like 25 of those bunches of chard. <laughs> so what does that say? Like, People are totally impulse shopping, and they think if there's one left, that there's something wrong with it. It's true. I wouldn't buy that chard, partly because it's chard, but <laughs> mainly because we naturally assume the last option is a bad option, which in many contexts is absolutely the case. For example, uh, you don't want the last magazine in the doctor's office because it's always Golf Digest. <laughs> always, and no one has ever read Golf Digest. That's not even a golf club in his hand, but no one noticed because it's on Golf Digest. <laughs> but when it comes to produce, the last option is probably completely fine, especially because, as another farmer explains, even slightly subpar fruits and vegetables don't make it to the produce aisle. Every time that the people are picking, they'll have a few they throw on the ground because there's always a few that aren't quite perfect. This is a perfectly good peach, yep. right on the ground like this. Yep. Oh my God. If you just look down this way, it's like a bounty. Look at that. And the reason that happens is that if a peach doesn't meet strict aesthetic standards, it might not be worth a farmer even trying to sell it. Our produce aisles have become a lot like Leonardo DiCaprio's penis, exclusively accessible to the physically flawless. <laughs> and it's not right. That's not right. In fact, our produce body shaming is actually so ingrained, it's reflected in the USDA's grading standards. Just look at the visual grading standards for peaches. This 
is a number one peach. And of course it is. That's an undeniably beautiful peach. Oh, I want to buy that peach dinner and fuck it. Whereas, whereas, and brace yourself, this is a number two peach and that is an abomination unto the Lord. And as soon as it is labelled a number two, it can lose two-thirds of its market value to a farmer, even though its contents are the same. And many retailers have standards even more strict than the USDA's. All of which is why so many peaches end up being thrown on the ground to rot. And that should not be how we treat our fruit. It should only be how we treat our celebrities. <laughs> so help me God, Channing Tatum, you lose one muscle fibre on that six-pack and I will personally toss you into Hollywood's landfill. <laughs> you keep it tight, Tatum. Hashtag, keep it tight, Tatum. You, you do it. And, and the thing is, we don't just reject food because of how it looks. Sometimes we do it out of pure fear. According to one estimate, 91% of us have thrown out food that's passed its sell-by date because we're afraid it's not safe. And I am absolutely part of that 91%. We're weirdly reverent towards these dates, even when they make no sense. Use by, sell by, and nothing but just a date. And this is all the same brand. This is all the same brand. This is not only the same brand, but also the same 2%. So what does this show us? This shows there's complete confusion out there. The only labels on food more meaningless than those are the ones on Smirnoff bottles that say triple distills vodka. Oh, really Smirnoff? So you ran the potato sweat through the tube sock two extra times. Thanks for spending the effort. We, we naturally assume sell-by dates reflect a uniform standard of safety, but that is not true. Well, actually, it has nothing to do with safety at all. It's just a manufacturer's best guess of when that food is going to be the freshest and at the best quality. Exactly. Those dates are decided on by manufacturers. And if I were a food manufacturer, I would make those dates as tight as possible to convince people to buy a new one of my products. Because unlike Apple, I can't just create a new operating system that suddenly means your old cereal is incompatible with your mouth. <laughs> and the truth is, with the exception of baby formula, the federal government does not require any food to carry an expiration date. And state laws vary widely, with nine states not requiring any date labels at all. Which means most of the time, sell-by dates are one of those things that look official, but you can probably ignore. Like a child in a cop uniform. Just, just stop it, Tyler. I'm not under arrest. You're under arrest. But because we think those dates are real, many supermarkets throw expired food out even before its sell-by date. And they don't donate it for what they think is a pretty good reason. Do you have anything that's close dated or any calls? No, we can't do that. You can't? No. It's a food health and safety issue. It's a safety you can't. Do you guys donate it then or? You don't yeah, donate? It. No. So it goes straight in the garbage. It goes straight in the garbage. Yeah. So I do it because it gets me lawsuits. There's too many lawsuits? Have you guys been sued before? I don't know, to tell you the truth. Oh, okay. Think, but it's a health and safety issue. That's a common misconception. We all think that if you donate food and someone gets sick, you can get sued. I thought that until earlier this week. But we looked into it and couldn't find a single case where a food donor has been sued. It doesn't happen. It's a false fear. Like believing if you go in the water after eating, you'll get a cramp and drown. Yeah. <laughs> It turns out that isn't true either. This week has blown my mind. <laughs> because the system is, 
If you donate food to a charity, you're covered by the Emerson Act, which says you cannot be sued if you make a food donation in good faith. You presumably get the same cover with donating clothes, e even though in some cases there you really should be sued. <laughs> donating a cowl neck sweater? Hello. <laughs> the homeless live in shelters, not fall 2008. <laughs> oh. Oh. But here's, here's the problem. Even if more people understood that, there would still be food that doesn't get to people who need it for a critical reason. Harold McClarty of HMC Farms says he'd like to donate more of his peaches to the food banks, but... Getting it into the hands of somebody to eat it isn't, isn't free. There's got to be an economic incentive to move more of this into an avenue that the food banks could take advantage of. It's a lot easier and cheaper just to basically throw it away. And that may be the biggest issue of all. For businesses, donating food is genuinely expensive. You've got to box it, store it, uh, coordinate deliveries for it. There's a lot of overheads. And you cannot fault companies for caring about their bottom line. In the same way, you can't fault a dog for caring about licking its balls. It's what dogs do, it's natural, and dog balls are delicious. <laughs> companies, in their defence, are not charities. Which is why they should be incentivized to donate food with tax breaks, Large corporations already get one, but annoyingly, that same break for small businesses is not a permanent part of the tax code, meaning that Congress has to keep renewing it, and that's a problem, because family farms or local restaurants may not know if they're going to get that break at the end of the year, and therefore whether donating food will be financially viable for them. It's a ridiculous system, which probably pre prevents a lot of food from being donated. So here is the good news. In February this year, a congressman proposed H.R. 644, the Fighting Hunger Incentive Act, uh, to make that tax break permanent. Here, actually, is one of the bill's sponsors. It's time to get rid of these short-term fixes, embrace long-term solutions. This legislation simply makes the provisions permanent. And when you think about it, that's important, because when something's not permanent, it affects our behavior. That's why we all treat rental cars like we're in a Fast and Furious movie. Oh, I'm sorry, sharp turn ahead. Get ready to drift, Kia Sorento. Woo! Now, now, you'll be happy to hear that bill passed the House. However, by the time it did, it had been bundled together with other unpaid-for tax breaks and retitled the America Gives More Act. But still, that original provision was in there, which means this problem has been solved the show is over, we can roll credits and all live happily ever after, right? No. Not right. Because when the bill got to the Senate, they, and I honestly did not know this was even possible, they removed everything from inside the bill, retitled it the Trade Facilitation and Trade Enforcement Act of 2015, and refilled it with completely different language concerning border control and US-Israeli relations, which meant, yes, H.R. 644 passed, just with a completely different title and completely different contents. It's like going to a restaurant, ordering a veggie burger and having the waiter say, here you go, uh, we made it out of meatloaf and we call it a waffle. <laughs> and then, you can't even say, well I don't want this, give it to someone who needs it, because they can't, because they don't know whether or not they'll get a f***ing tax credit for it. And look, the, the insane thing, is everyone basically agrees small businesses should get tax incentives to donate food. So we have to find a way to pass that. But even if we do, it will be one small part of what needs to be a much bigger solution. From you know, resolving to eat uglier fruit, 
uh, to taking expiration dates with a pinch of salt, to no longer worrying about getting sued by high-powered lawyers representing the hungry. And, and we all have to address our relationship with food waste, or at the very least, our cheeseburger commercials are going to have to get a lot more honest. What's more American than a cheeseburger? This cheeseburger, loaded with a hot dog and potato chips, in the hands of a model, in a hot tub, in a pickup truck, on an aircraft carrier, in front of the Statue of Liberty. I'll tell you what's more American. If that cheeseburger's been thrown away, along with 15 other cheeseburgers, in front of a food-insecure family of four who frankly cannot f***ing believe their eyes as they stand on top of 14 tons of perfectly edible, if aesthetically unappealing, fruits and vegetables, which in turn sits on top of 80 tons of dairy products, all one day past their arbitrary sell-by date, all of which sits inside a tear rolling down Abraham Lincoln's face on Mount Rushmore, which is now nearly chin-deep and millions of discarded cheeseburgers all gradually decomposing and emitting flammable methane in red, white, and blue. That is f***ing American. Available on Gumpfish, Gary Carl's Jr. and Hardee's. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. There's a fascinating piece in today's Financial Times Titled, it's by Sean Donovan. It's titled, Are 12 Million Americans Living on Less Than $2 a Day? Now, just let that sink in for a minute. The worldwide standard, the, the, the U.S. standard for poverty is, is uh, $14 a day. If you live on less than $14 a day, you are in poverty in the United States, which is pretty damn little money. The world standard for poverty is $2 a day. So these researchers at Brookings said, well, gee, it'd be interesting to see how many Americans are living on less than $2 a day. And it turns out it's roughly out of the 46.5 million Americans who live on less than, excuse me, $16 a day is the U.S. poverty line, the national poverty, the official national poverty line. 46.5 million people in the United States live below $16 a day which is equally mind-boggling. The number, it, 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 Try to remember these numbers, because in just a minute I'm going to give you some other countries for comparison, and which will pop your eyeballs. 
So you, we have we have almost 50 million people in this country living on less than $16 a day. About a quarter of them, or 12 million people, are living on less than $2 a day. Now that amounts to 4% of the population of the United States living on less than $2 a day, living on, on po- poverty levels for sub-Saharan Africa or China or anywhere else. Right? 4% of Americans... Now, according to World Bank statistics, in Russia, how many people live on $2 a day or less in Russia? What do you think? We're 4%. According to the Financial Times, you can read this yourself. Russia is one-tenth of 1%. We're 4%. How about the West Bank and Gaza? They are three-tenths of 1%. We are 4%. Jordan, which is, you know, half of Jordan is a giant refugee camp. They are 1.6%. We are 4% of people living under $2 a day. The uh, urban populations of Argentina, this would include all the, the these huge slums, 1.9%. China comes close to us, 3.5%. But they've got a lot of urban poverty, and and I'm not sure that they're measuring the ability of people to feed themselves. Pretty amazing. We are the only country in the developed world that that we have the lowest minimum wage or the the lowest effective minimum wage. We we are the only country that does not provide health care as a right to all of our citizens. We're the only country that does not provide free government paid for education as a right for all of its citizens. It's it's really quite extraordinary. reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, Hunger Action Month. One in six Americans struggles with hunger. As highlighted before on this show, that number hardly fluctuates no matter what's happening with job numbers, stock market, or the economy. Our capitalist system has created a sizable class of people, an estimated 49 million right now, who can't take for granted that they'll eat tomorrow. Until we fundamentally change the system, people will go hungry. Hunger Action Month is the perfect time to push back on all the right-wing and center-left poverty-shaming tropes. Feeding America, a fantastic organization that provides over 3 billion meals annually and reaches nearly every community in the country, has fantastic graphics, memes, educational materials, and social media campaigns available to share with your networks. Feeding America has also rebranded September as Spoon Timber. To raise awareness and encourage people to volunteer, Feeding America is calling for self 
selfies with a spoon balanced on your nose. We all know silly works on social media. I mean, buckets of ice water raised over $100 million for ALS research, after all. So take a selfie, tag at Feeding America on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and include the stats on the campaign page at feedingamerica.org in your post. You can also support the Thunderclap scheduled for Hunger Action Day. That's this Thursday, September 3rd, by clicking the link in the segment notes and in the Feeding America Facebook and Twitter feeds. It only takes 10 seconds, and your social media post will go out as a blast alongside other supporters, potentially reaching millions by helping the hashtag go viral. If you've been meaning to volunteer, but like most of us, forget or are reluctant to get involved with something new, take the opportunity during a month when many of the other volunteers will be new as well. You can all be unsure of yourselves together. And what better cause than feeding hungry people? FeedingAmerica.org will connect you to your local food bank, or if in-person engagement isn't a viable option for you, help you run a virtual food drive. You can also ask your members of Congress to visit a food bank from the Feeding America homepage. There's no expiration date on this action as residents in all 3,143 U.S. counties experience food insecurity, making this an epidemic in the richest nation on the planet. Whatever level of involvement you're able to take makes a difference in helping end stigma, raise money, and push toward a better, more sustainable system. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If reducing the number of hungry Americans matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Spoon Timber via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action? This is Talk Poverty Radio. I'm Rebecca Vallis. And I'm Tracy Ross, and we're joined by a very special guest today. Mike Konzel, he's a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. He's also a contributor to The Nation magazine and Descent. Thanks so much for joining us, Mike. Thanks so much for having me on. So you have written about what you call the voluntarism fantasy. Um, it's basically that conservatives dream of returning to a world where private charity fulfilled all public needs. Those are your words. But you say that world never existed and we're better for it. Tell us what you mean by that. Sure. So one thing uh, I've noticed a lot lately and I, you know, um, over the past couple of years, but particularly over the past couple of decades when I started to dig into it, was the notion that if we got rid of a lot of social insurance programs, this is income support, this is social security, this is food stamps, that people would not be worse off because private forms of income support, charity, volunteerism societies, would largely go in and fill those out. And in fact, these government programs were net negative for society because they crowded out these efforts by civil society, by communities to deal with poverty and deal with real income insecurity. And I heard that and it sounded like a wrong idea. And I really wanted to dig into the history of it and really kind of come up with a deep argument for why it's a wrong idea. And that's what I did in this piece for Democracy Journal 
few years ago. And uh, I think it's really comes up again and again. And I think we're going to hear it a lot more as we talk about Social Security and as we talk about the 2016 election. So tell us more about why this world never existed. Give us a little bit of a history lesson. Sure. So like a lot of uh, conservative thinking, it involves going back to a 19th century that never really existed. This idea that somehow before the New Deal, now with all this Glenn Beck stuff, before the progressive era, there was just like not a state and everything was done privately by individuals or by communities. And it was much better, or at least it was no worse off. And first of all, that's just not true. If you go back to the 19th century, there's poor houses. There's a lot of state interventions and fighting and debate about what to do with the problem of people who are chronically poor, problems of people who are disabled, uh, problems of people who have poverty and old age, problems of people who are sick. These are the what um, are often called the four horsemen of like kind of income security, sickness, disability, unemployment, and, and poor health. And so there's always been government interventions to try to deal with this problem, often in an ad hoc and piecemeal way. Um, things from you know bankruptcy laws to civil war pensions to, um, you know, the poorhouse, which I mentioned earlier, were all these kinds of ad hoc things. And, you know, what a lot of people often point to is these voluntarism societies that, that sprouted up, particularly in the 1920s, particularly in immigrant communities. And that whole system, which was nowhere near as secure, nowhere near as deep as uh, a lot of conservatives imagine, all of, the, all of these ways of thinking of things were just wiped out by the Great Depression. And, and in its wake came Social Security, which really did eliminate... Um, certainly by the 1960s when it was formalized, really did eliminate poverty among old age. And there's deep reasons to, to understand why the government has this role, reasons why private, individual, and market-based systems just won't work over over the long haul. So let's fast forward then a bit to present day. You know, if I'm just an average citizen, the idea that a charity can step in and, and really do good, it, it seems, you know, pretty practical to me. You know, I, I remember talking to, I'll explain this to you later, Rebecca, but talking to a conservative in Florida and they're like, even the, the poorest person in the U.S. can go to a soup kitchen. We have the poorest people in the world. So there's almost this idea that, you know, it makes more practical sense to have charities do this. You know, how would you respond to that? Sure. So there's a couple of really specific reasons why this won't work. One is um, just the business cycle. We saw in the Great Recession, when the Great Recession really came on in 2008 and 2009, when unemployment hit 10%, um, charitable giving fell. And it fell as a percentage of GDP. It fell in raw numbers. And it fell uh, specifically when people were asked about it. People just said they were insecure. They don't have money. They, you know, they're worried. So there's a business cycle reason that the government can step in when the, when the economy is collapsing and provide broad income support. That's the idea of unemployment insurance, the increase in food stamps that went with a higher rate of unemployment. Um, the second is, you know, regional issues. Um, there are areas that, you know, can be rich or poor in times. We saw it in the Great Recession with, um, a lot of areas got really hit by the housing bust in places that were hit by the housing bust, places like Arizona, California, Florida, Nevada, um, were much worse off. And But places that weren't as hit, um, you know, basically you could transfer resources across them. Uh, and it works really well in the United States. If you're just dealing locally, you know, places where, that are hit the hardest are not going to be able to step up and provide need the way that they can. And the third is that, you know, a lot of charity is essentially a lot of, you know, rich people signaling. We see it with all these donations that go to Harvard or Yale. And you think, is this really the best use of money uh, for these colleges that are kind of like giant hedge funds already? Do they really need hundreds of millions of dollars more uh, when people are starving? 
Um, there are things that if it is a social, a, a societal need, the government can provide the baseline and also set the baseline. And then once that baseline is set, private charity can come in and be much more nimble. Um, you know, the, these, the four things we identified earlier, dis- disability, illness, unemployment, and um, old age, are just, they're heavy lifts. And they're deep and persistent heavy lifts. And it's very difficult for any individual to tackle them by themselves or any community of individuals to tackle them by themselves, which is why the governments across the Western nations play a role in this. So no longer playing a devil's advocate. Why do you think that this, um, I guess, romanticization, is that a, is that even a word? This of, um, like, oh, yeah, I'll go with it. Why do you think that this, this, um, story continues to play out that this idea that charity can fill in if, you know, you're laid out the facts so easily? Well, it's, you know, it's obviously, it would be a, a better world, I suppose. You know, the idea that we can, you know, simply just take care of ourselves in small communities. Um, you know, I don't know that, you know, I don't think that ever really happened, but it certainly doesn't happen out here in the 21st century where, you know, the, the market in the world is just, radically different than it's been in the past. There's a great house hearing uh, about a year ago or half a year ago where um, they had uh, leaders of various food bank organizations uh, come before the House. And I think the Republicans were excited to hear them talk about like, oh, we can tackle poverty. We don't need food stamps. Uh, and instead, what they all said basically to a T is um, the sequestration and the government cuts that have come since 2010 uh, have put them h- hugely at risk. Um, because a lot of states also are cutting back on their income support budgets, which basically means that they have to pick up more, but there's no more donations. There's no more volunteering than, than there was before. And it shows that, and I think this is a really important point, is that our third sector, our, our civil society's always been joined at the hip with the government. Um, there's always been a back and forth in how those things are done. And things like food stamps and things like donations to food banks, which is in the federal budget, really do help secure out which is then supplemented and made much more rich and locally vigorous uh, by individual charity and individual action among communities. So then what's the motivation cynically? I'm going to ask you a cynical question here. What's the motivation behind perpetuating this volunteerism fantasy? You know, there's these, um, you know, cake and eat it to arguments, right? So, you know, a lot of conservatives will make arguments that say, you know, if you cut taxes, we can raise revenue because we'll just grow that much faster. That doesn't happen. Um, you know, there's a big argument in the, in the, uh, recession saying if, you know, if there was austerity, it would be expansionary. Like you would actually, the economy would take off if we just did austerity, which didn't happen. And I think there's this idea that, um, you know, if we cut income support or we just cut our ability to provide social insurance for people, all this private energy would just be unleashed. And it's a, you know, it's a nice thought that, you know, you can have your cake and eat it too, right? That's like, you know, it would be painless to do these things. But there's reasons both historically and in practice why, why it doesn't happen that way and why we do in fact see things like social security radically reduce elderly poverty, um, uh, poverty among, especially among women and, and children, uh, and why cuts to those things would disproportionately increase poverty. And we've been talking about this in relation to what conservatives are saying. And so you've argued that progressives need our own definition of, of charity. And you cited uh, President Truman giving a speech at the United Way when he said, I like the campaign slogan this year. Everybody gives, everybody benefits. It marks a significant change in our thinking about the word charity. Is this a progressive definition to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really useful uh, definition to like start with to say that there's there is charity, and you know, it's 
civil society is incredibly important to liberals and progressives, the ability of communities to come together and associations, including unions and including um, churches and other groups. But we have to understand their limitations. To, to respect something is to understand what it can't do. And the idea that groups like that can just simply solve the problem of poverty and, and old age is just not possible. It's not possible among families and it's not possible among other groups. And to try to do that would fundamentally weaken the ability of those groups to function in the ways that they need to, which are broader and more social. So do you think we can apply that definition then to social insurance? Absolutely. I think I think a really important thing, uh, one thing I didn't understand until I had to start dealing with movement conservatives as opposed to just general people who happen to be conservatives, um, <laughs> you know, because I'm relatively new to this world of politics. I've, I've been in this for about four or five years, is that um, when you talk to people who are really conservative, in in the movement sense, and as they work for think tanks, or they work for institutions, uh, they don't want to fix Social Security, and they don't even really want to cut it. I mean, they would like to cut it, perhaps, but what they really want to do is privatize it, which is why you often find a lot of them just aren't that interested in trying to fix balances or think of innovative ways to try to make the social insurance programs work better, because they don't want them to work at all. And they, one of the important rhetorical tools that they're going to use is the idea that families and churches and communities would be better off if these programs were gone. That is simply not the case. Those those institutions would be much weaker because they have to carry a weight that they've never been able to historically. Which takes us back to something we heard about earlier in the episode from Michael Hiltzik at the LA Times talking about how one of the shrewdest moves that conservatives have made in the last several years is to defund Social Security's administrative budget so that it can effectively have poorer customer service and therefore less in the way of public support. Um, But our last question for you is, and and this is sort of a, a big picture one to close it out, you've written... Um, that uh, the need for social insurance is actually really what gave birth to the progressive movement. How did that happen? Sure. So, uh, you know, starting in the late 19th century, I mean, you, you suddenly had huge problems with illness, unemployment, on disability and old age, and poverty and old age, um, things that could be handled here and there, but suddenly became incredibly more uh, chronic with, you know, the advance of large-scale industrialization, the move away from a farm-based economy towards a market-based economy, and then really in the Great Depression, which um, the Great Depression made it very clear that, you know, however much you saved, if your bank was wiped out, then you were poor. It uh, didn't matter how responsible you were. It didn't matter how skilled you were if unemployment's 20 or 30 percent. And so I think understanding that individuals or small groups of individuals and communities can't handle the real risks and problems of a you know modern capitalist economy, which promises huge rewards and huge growth, but makes any individual much riskier, much you know much much more at risk of poverty. Um, you know that's we know how to solve those things. Governments do it. And it's a question of whether or not we're going to do it more. This is Jill from California. I have a suggestion for a call to activism that I think is pretty easy and um, actually pretty fun. It's to go visit your local public library. Our libraries are constantly under assault from people who don't like the fact that 
libraries provide everyone with free access to information and uh, help us protect our rights and improve our lives. Um, and there's also uh, a lot of people who just don't understand why libraries still exist since we all have Google or whatever. I don't know if you know that public library budgets are often the first to get cut when governments are looking for ways to deal with reduced budgets during economic times or like if the police want more money, they, they go raid the library's budget. And then when budgets come back and the economy comes back, it's often the library that's the last to get their budgets restored. So really, um, you know, just walking through the front door of your library is an act of activism. It helps demonstrate to local leadership and the community that libraries are still valuable and worth something and that people still use them. Once you're in there, get a library card, check that your library card is still active, check out a book, get something, look around, see who else is in there. I was in my library last night, uh, Friday night, and the place was packed, even right before closing on a Friday night. So in uh, Jay, in episode 948, you mentioned riding a bike over to the public library to see if there was a book that they have. If they don't have it, you know, you can ask if they would consider acquiring it. A lot of libraries keep a, a small budget to respond to specific requests, and they're usually happy to hear from people about what they're actually interested in reading so that they can get what the community's interested in. Anyway, thanks, uh, Jay and Katie, for everything you do, and keep up the great work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. Now, I'm sure that I'll get back to you know more feedback and conversation in the next episode, but first, this is just about my uh, trip to Glacier. I, I came back a couple of days ago. Everything was fine. Uh, you know, I've had a couple of days to uh, decompress or you know relax before getting back into the swing of things. And to to frame the entire story, you have to know you know the biggest story out there. And so imagine, like, if you've been camping at all, if you had like a little campfire, been sitting next to the campfire, you've probably had the wind shift a little bit and had the smoke blow in your face. And like, oh no, I got a little smoke in my face. And so you have to take a step to the side so that the smoke's not blowing in your face anymore. Well, imagine that, except the campfire is all of Washington State, Oregon, and Idaho, and downwind from the smoke is the entire state of Montana. So in order to be like, oh, I got to get out of the smoke, you'd have to go to like Colorado to get out of it. So, you know, you know, we fly in to Kalispell and, you know, above the clouds, it's beautiful. It's blue sky and everything. Um, didn't see the blue sky again for about a week. But you know, as you come down, it's a little bit grayer, a little bit more, you know, descending. And then by the time you land, it's like a post-apocalyptic nightmare. Uh, so just to give you a sense, like, we set up camp, and but we didn't quite put everything away that just that first uh, afternoon, evening, and it started to rain just a little bit. And so I, I jogged from, we were down sort of at the lodge of this little campground where we had set up for the first night. And I was like, oh, I better go put some stuff away at the campsite so it doesn't get wet. So I like jogged an eighth of a mile uh, up this slight incline, and I was just 
exhausted by the end, just like gasping for breath. That first rain, though, that that, that first uh, evening's rain, the good news is it, it at least created one semi-clear day for us. So we flew in on, I want to say Friday. So Saturday was the, the clearest day we had by far. I uh, got a couple of pictures where you could actually see some mountains, and it was lovely. Quick little story from that day. Uh, we, you know, we, we flew in. We didn't have a car or anything. We didn't rent a car. So we were taking shuttles whenever we needed to go sort of moderately long distances. So we took a shuttle from our little campground into the park on the first day. And, uh, and so as we were headed towards the park, we passed some picketers. They were holding signs that said, uh, climate change is real and uh, keep public lands public, don't sell our parks, those sorts of things, uh, you know, ideas I, I certainly endorse. And uh, and the shuttle driver, being in Montana, remember, said, um, oh man, I, you know, I hate to break it to those people, but, you know, the park's not really public land. It's owned by the government. And I said, well, you know, we do own the government, and he said, yeah, you know, but some of those government folks, like, you know, some of them think they own us, you know what I mean? But yeah, you know, I mean, I, I guess technically you're right. So uh, I'll, I will take that as a win. Um, and then after that, we were pretty much surrounded by climate hippies for the rest of the trip. So that was pretty much the only, you know, local color we got. Now, if you're familiar with Glacier, I'll tell you the trails we did or maybe you're going to go. And uh, I totally endorse all of these trails. They were all great. Uh, we did Avalanche Creek and the Trail of the Cedars the first day. Uh, we did uh, the Highline Trail to the Loop. And this is a good one. It's it's way up in the mountains. That's why it's called Highline. And uh, you go through the historic Granite Park Chalet. You have to hike either eight miles in one direction or about four miles from the other direction to get to this chalet. It's way up in the mountains. There's nothing else around it. Uh, it's called the Granite Park Chalet. It has no granite in it. As far as I know, there is no granite in the entire park. Uh, so they just misnamed it because they didn't know what they were doing. And the, this chalet was built with horses just hauling material to the top of a mountain. And, uh, you know, I, I marveled at it as, you know, the, a real testament to the power of vision and perseverance and cheap immigrant labor, which is totally how it was built. On the third day, we went to Grinnell Glacier and Grinnell Lake, and this is where the climate change comes in. There didn't used to be a lake there. The lake only formed after the glacier started melting. Voila. Uh, and then the fourth day, we went to Rockwell Falls. So the final count, we survived a, a total of 45 miles of hiking, seven bears, that was six black, one grizzly, uh, five moose, four bighorn sheep, a handful of goats, uh, at least one marmot, and a whole herd of bison, and all while surrounded by the smoke of 100 forest fires. So now, you know, Glacier being an incredibly beautiful and special place in the country, you may be wondering which American Indian tribe was totally fucked out of its ancestral homeland in order for this to become an American park. Well, that would be the Blackfeet tribe. Their home traditionally included the plains, which is next to Glacier, as well as the mountainous area that is now the park. Uh, but their reservation just borders the park now on the east side of the mountains, so they're just on the plains. 
1895, the Blackfeet Indians sold the western portion of their reservation to the United States government for $1.5 million, which is around $43 million in today's money. And even if you are not at all familiar with the Blackfeet Indians, you probably actually are familiar with them without even realizing it. Somehow, their particular style became sort of the poster child of what basically all white people think of when they think of Indians. They had the teepees, the feather headdresses, the sweat lodge uh, vision quests, and so on. Uh, and so, you know, from a white perspective, they're basically like the quintessential representation of American Indians. Uh, and so we w went out to their reservation. We saw their casino. Saw the little main road where the museums are, telling the history of the tribe, and and then we even stayed one night in a teepee village on the reservation. And you can too; it's on Airbnb. Uh, the road out to that teepee village is currently being widened, and the very brief explanation we got about why they were doing the work was, you know, partly they wanted to add bike lanes, which is nice, and also to make the road safer. They just want to make it wider to make it safer because. Uh, there are a lot of Blackfeet Nation members who were dying on that stretch of road, often under the influence. So all in all, the trip was pretty great. You know, in in all honesty and seriousness, it was uh, you know the fundraising was organized by Climate Ride, and the hike itself was organized by Glacier Guides, and everyone who worked at Glacier Guides was just unbelievably fantastic, totally knowledgeable, and tireless. They worked sun up to past sundown every day. The whole thing was a well-oiled machine, and I cannot say enough great things about you know everyone I met from that organization. So if you're doing Glacier and you want to be with a tour group or, or hook up with a guiding organization, definitely check out Glacier Guides. And uh, and just personally, the, the timing of this trip could not have been better. As I was wrapping up work before leaving, the conversation, as I'm sure you remember, uh, the conversation about Black Lives Matter was still burning bright. And looking back now, having experienced the whole trip and everything, uh, I can say with absolute confidence that given the choice between talking to one more person on social media about Black Lives Matter or wandering for a week through a post-apocalyptic hellscape of fire, smoke, environmental destruction, and ancient cultural bastardization, then I would choose the latter every single time. So that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad story Wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad songs